Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you are listening to the Killer Mediums Podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is indie badasses, and we are joined by one of the biggest indie badasses herself, Janine Pipe. Uh, (laughs) As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's big topics, especially the Outwaters, the Terrifier movies... We'll try to avoid too many spoilers for Janine's own works, um, but we might talk about some plot points that you would want to avoid or some general like concepts that you might want to go in fresh on. So if you're trying to avoid spoilers for any of that, turn back now. But with all of that said, and out of the way, here we go. Let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Janine, how the hell are you doing today? I am very well, thank you. I'm very excited to finally be here talking with you after we've rearranged and rearranged. So thank you for being patient with me. Of course. I fully understand the rearranging because when I first reached out, I think you were like the week of filming uh, her. (laughs) So it was the worst possible timing. And then as soon as that closed out, all of this stuff about footsteps started spinning up. And it was just like, I can't believe I actually managed to find an hour window to talk to you in here. So just thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, things do get a bit crazy. And and I don't think that people kind of realise exactly how crazy stuff gets unless you're kind of semi-involved in the in the industry. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, and that's a big thing that we'll get into, I think, as we're talking, is I have a very, very tiny lens for the industry. I know very little about it. So this is one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about. Before we go all the way down that road that I was about to take off on, though, (laughs) let's give you just a second to introduce yourself. Uh, For any listener that doesn't know who you are, kind of what's your niche in the horror community, if you feel like you have one, or what are some of the big projects that you've worked on or are working on? Um, Tell us about yourself. Thank you. Um, I don't have a niche at all. I'm very much a finger in every single pie possible kind of person, I think. Um, So I would say that I was primarily a writer, um, both fiction and fact-based things, including um, my most recent publication, which came out last year, which is Sausages, The Making of Dog Soldiers, which is an in-depth celebration of dog soldiers, clearly, which is my most favourite film in the entire world. Um, And through all of the writing and getting to know people to do with dog soldiers, that's how I kind of fell into basically filmmaking as well. And it was very much one of those moments of, you know, I've reached a certain age, I'm 43 now, Um, I'm not going to be waiting around for somebody to say, come and do something with me, I'm just going to go for it myself and just enjoy what I'm doing. And thankfully, it seems to have just picked up and all of a sudden I'm doing so many different bits and pieces and I just thoroughly enjoy it. So yeah, uh, an author and now somehow a director. (laughs) It's been so fantastic kind of being a fan of yours on Twitter for the last few years, because I think I've seen you make a couple of posts about this yourself. 
you started as a writer, you didn't really have a lot of like background or inroads or anything like that, like no big, like born with a silver spoon sort of a mm-hmm. approach for you. You're a mom, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, and you're a retired police officer? Yes, that's right. Yep. <laughs> all right. Uh, all of my internet stalking, it's paying off. <laughs> um, but you just kind of decided that you were going to dive into this thing wholeheartedly and like seeing you have as much success as you're having and about to have with all of this, it's just like crazy amounts of inspiring. So oh, thank you. That's <laughs> from the outside of, looking in, thank you. That's one of my favorite things. I, I'll often say I'm happy to talk about myself and my journey, not because it's any kind of like, ooh, look what I've done, you know, not in a show off way at all, but in a way to say, look, if I can do this, imagine what you can do if you put your mind to it kind of thing. And so many people have reached out to me and said, you have given me the inspiration. You've given me the kick up the ass that I needed to <laughs> pitch an idea to a publisher or to finally, you know, finish off my script and send it out to someone. And knowing that I have even helped in the tiniest bit for other people to be, you know, building up and making their dreams come true. That's just the best feeling in the world. Yeah. And I, gosh, this is going to be the 300th time I've gone on this rant on the show, but like it, there are so many people in the horror community with that sort of an outlook on things of just trying to lift each other up. Like, I love this community so much. Um, I'm going to try to cut it off there though. Otherwise I'll, I'll be ranting again for the next 30 minutes. Um, Back to the topic at play though. So indie badasses, there are so many different mediums of entertainment that horror gets to play in. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on the show is you, like you said, had your fingers in the pies of lots of different sorts of mediums. Yes. You've, you've gone down the authoring route. You've gone down the directing route. You've gone down the producing route, right? Yes. Yeah. So you, you have seen this thing from all the different angles and uh, you, you've seen what it takes to be successful as an indie author, as an indie filmmaker. Um, for you, as you're looking at indie filmmakers, indie authors versus the more traditionally published authors or the more traditionally funded uh, directors, producers, what is the draw? What is the high point of indie horror versus the more traditional routes? I think the big thing is creativity. And being allowed to more or less do what you want when you're independent and you haven't got a studio breathing down your neck telling you what you can and can't do. You haven't got a, you know, one of the big five saying, oh, no, we can't talk about that in this. And those kind of things. You've got more freedom when you're independent. Um, and that's a big thing. Um, of, uh, I will bring up Neil Marshall, you know, time and time again, because he's obviously he's a friend of mine. He's a big um, influence and he's my mentor. And if you look at all of his work that he's done, which has all been amazing, the thing and he'll quite candidly talk about it as well. It, the big thing that was very eye opening for him was Hellboy working on Hellboy, coming in and being a director for hire uh, with somebody else's IP and with a studio and whatnot. He didn't like it at all. And he will talk about that experience saying that when you haven't got control over something, it's a completely different ball game. And when you're indie, 
you have so many struggles, you know, money's just the the first of it, you know, there's there's so many different hurdles that you have to overcome. But at the end of it, it's yours. It's your idea. It's your creativity. It's everything that you wanted to do. And nobody can take that away from you. It's something that you own. It's something that you've made. And I think that is the big draw and why so many people either go with indie presses or they self-publish rather than go down the traditional route. First of all, so many people are trying to get into the traditional route anyway. There's loads more competition. And a lot of people, I think, have got the same attitude as me in that just go for it. Just do it. You know, don't wait around for somebody. Just if you want to write a book, write a book and self-publish it. If you want to make a film, make a film and just put it out there kind of thing. It might not be amazing. It might be a pile of poo, but at least you've done it kind of thing. And you can learn from that experience. And the next time you do something, you might do it a little bit differently. But that's the beauty of anything that's indie. It's yours and there's nobody breathing down your neck. You've also got more time as well. Um, like if a studio had um, been dictating with Damien and Terrifier and Terrifier 2, even with the COVID restrictions and things, he wouldn't have had that, you know, like three years to have made it kind of thing. He would have had six weeks, two months, whatever it is. And if he hadn't made that, then he'd be in trouble kind of thing. So there's that as well when you're constantly hit with deadlines and things. Whereas when you're indie, when you're independent um, or self-publishing or self-making stuff, it's all on you. You're making those deadlines. So you've kind of hit on two things here that I want to I want to expound upon. Um, it, talking about the the just going out and doing your own creative vision, and it might be great, and it might be a, a pile of poo, um, <laughs> but it, it could be anywhere on the spectrum. Um, that's one road I want to go down, and I also want to talk so much about Terrifier and Terrifier Two, and just Damien Leone's process for getting both of those made. But let's let's start with that first comment and stay just a little bit more general here for. For a few more seconds, um, one of the things with indie books and with indie movies, I think, um, is the struggle to try to get attention for them because there's this stigma surrounding self-published books, especially. Mm-hmm. I think independent films too is, um, and I've seen this Twitter, this con- this discourse pop mm-hmm. up on Twitter semi-regularly, where people are just dogging uh, self-published authors uh, with this concept that, oh, they're just self-publishing because they couldn't make it with a traditional publisher or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, How do you think indie publishers try to break through that stigma? How do we, how do we get um, an indie book or an indie movie into the limelight, getting people to see like, oh crap, no, the creativity is just like flourishing here. Um, think so movie wise things again like terrifier really really massively help you know there's the you know it's it's a really good thing because it's showing that indie stuff is really really out there and that it just takes you know sort of one um non-studio based film to do well and then all of a sudden people are looking at other things as well um i think it's a little harder with publishing Um, especially indie publishing, because a lot of times um, independent publishers might only be able to have it um, as an Amazon only product, for example, because of costs and whatnot. And therefore, you're not walking into um, a bookstore and seeing these particular books on the shelves or in the airport and those kind of things. So it, it is more of a struggle. But I think 
generally the people within our own community don't hold that kind of stigma. I think there's a lot of people that probably um, are either self-published or indie published that then reach traditional publishing and it's kind of like it's been a journey for them and maybe that is the end goal, not necessarily because of the um, stigma attached to it, but because you know you're going to make more money and possibly if you're traditionally published, you might even be able to therefore be a full-time writer. You might not have to have the day job and do the writing because of the amount of royalties and the advances and all those kind of things and the fact that you are going to walk into a bookstore and see physically your books there which is a massive thing Uh, I definitely think that is like even in the short time that I've been doing it sort of over the last five years or so there is more of a shift that it is harder to get published traditionally because if it was easy then everybody would be doing it and that actually independent publishing or even self-publishing isn't that kind of like second best it's an alternative and I think that's kind of like we are starting to get there in that people are seeing them as just kind of like two sides of the same coin rather than oh god I suppose I'll have to self-publish because again with self-publishing which is what I did with my own um, fiction collection it means I control everything to do with it so I can change the price if I want I can do you know I can um, add some more bits to it and republish it if I wanted to there's all sorts of control that you've got and every month those royalties come straight into me I'm not having to wait for a publisher to pay me I'm not having to divvy anything out so there is that as well which can be really helpful when you um obviously have a book published through a publisher whether it's independent or traditional you're waiting on them to pay you and you might not get as much as you think you are because obviously they're divvying it out to other people involved so that again is the beauty of self-publishing it's just I I can understand that with self-publishing and indie publishing you're then having to constantly promote yourself and some people are au fait with that. Some people revel in that. And some people absolutely hate doing that kind of thing. You know, it's it's not second nature at all. And they, they will do anything they can not to talk about it. And you have to kind of see yourself as like a business. You know, if you owned, um, I don't know, a car dealership, for example, I don't know where that example came from. But if you did, then you would need to be advertising it for people to be coming and buy your cars, all those kind of things. And it's the same when you write a book. If I didn't occasionally tweet about it and all those kind of things, if I didn't um, post like reviews and things, if I didn't, if I, you know, look on YouTube and someone had done something, if I didn't share those kind of things, no one would ever know that I'd written a book. So you have to be comfortable with doing that. And that really helps as well i don't know if i answered the question or not there <laughs> you did no well okay so you didn't answer my question but it's because i realized after you started talking i never actually like formulated a question okay. <laughs> like you, you took all of my mindless jabbering and turned it into a fantastic answer <laughs> on something that i couldn't even phrase myself so wonderful thank you <laughs> uh, that was perfect though um yes so okay so Let's pivot over to uh, the film side of things now, because I think I I have nothing to add to your answer. You 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 nailed it. I think different strokes for different folks. Some some people like really like having their hands on the marketing themselves and having full control over every step of it, and other people would rather just like write the book, hand it off, whatever happens happens, and they move on to the next thing. But now we're going to point our lens very much towards 
the people that are doing this on their own. They're getting the funding on their own. They have the vision on their own. They're seeing this thing through start to end. And I think one of the big examples nowadays, modern era of this is Damien Leone and the Terrifier franchise. Yeah. Um, From my perspective, I remember seeing Art the Clown pop up on Netflix something like six years ago. I am not a clown person. Mm-hmm. So I saw art and I immediately fuck node and moved straight past it. <laughs> yep, <same laughs> I, I came back years later when I heard about him crowdfunding or Kickstartering or whichever one it was, uh, Terrifier 2. And there was so much buzz around it that I was like, okay, I have to go through this thing. There's something here that I haven't seen yet. Let's mm-hmm. Let's just buckle down and do it. And Terrifier 1 is such a batshit crazy, almost experimental film in just how gruesome and hyper-violent it is. I cannot think of other movies that lean into just the the brutality as much as Terrifier does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it got so much legs with the horror community. I think that's how it got... Um, a sequel greenlit and like Damien like knew that he had something here that he could go work with all of this completely disregarding all hollows Eve, which I think is a prequel or a parallel, like first movie to the first one. Um, So from your perspective, I I read your blog post on this. I think your experience was somewhat similar to mine Mm -hmm. uh, with the first terrifier. Uh, but you are a lot more well-versed in how Damien pulled this thing off um, and just kind of like what the goal was and what the what the roadmap was. So could you please talk us through Terrifier 1? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, and definitely. So I had a similar experience um, insofar as I, I'm exactly the same with fuck no, that's a clown. I am not watching that. Never. I don't want to watch it. I have no interest. I could not. No, that's not happening. Um, and I didn't even know about ter- the Terrifier 2 stuff. That kind of like bypassed me as well. Um, and it was I was actually listening to an episode of The Movie Crypt with Joe Lynch and Adam Green, which I absolutely love. I love both of those guys as well. And it was an episode with Damien Leone talking about Terrifier and Terrifier 2. And it was this really bizarre moment where just something clicked and I was like wow I need to know as much as I can about this guy and about his films and just everything to do with him because this all just sounds amazing he had such an interesting background um in so far that he grew up obviously watching these films way 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 too young back in the 80s and 90s but in what it did for him was it it really inspired um a a dream of his to work in movies and to do the special effects and he started playing around with all of that kind of stuff as a youngster so not only um making films but learning the actual gags you know like Tom Savini's his big hero and he learned how to do all of those kind of things he was making latex masks and working out how to do the blood spurts and all that kind of stuff as a teen 
And then he actually used all of that, all of that knowledge. And it was very much the same as when I say, like, just go out and do it kind of thing. That's what he did with All Hallows Eve, basically. He just made these few short films. Um, two of them have Art the Clown in it, although it isn't art as we know him with David Howard Thornton. It's just a mate of his because, again, he had no money to make this whatsoever. It was just like... I know that I can do some of the effects because that's what I do, but I'm going to need some of my friends to come in and help me and whatnot. And I believe the story goes that he'd put um, one of them onto YouTube and a producer had seen it. And this particular producer had wanted to make an anthology, which was going to be All Hallows Eve. And he said to Damien, have you got something else that you can make? And we can put all of this together, which is why the middle section, which is like a UFO kind of thing, is a little bit different to the other two sections, but basically put it all together. And in the back of Damien's mind, he always knew that he wanted to do more with art, that he was going to have this, um, that he wanted a feature because art was such a potentially iconic character. And again, with all of his knowledge of special effects, that he could make something quite special with this. Um, but again, he didn't have any kind of money or background or film school or anything like that. So it took quite a few years to be able to get to that stage. And once he kind of got to the whole stage of being able to make Terrifier, I believe they made it for something like $37,000. You know, they, it's a, and that might sound like quite a lot to people that don't know. But anyone who's ever made a feature, that is like literally peanuts who are doing, you know, that that probably just pays for the electricity for the cameras and things like that. You know, it's that's that is basically nothing whatsoever. And they did it. They managed to make this film um, and it is amazing. And a lot of people berate it um, for being too violent and violent for the sake of violence and all of that kind of stuff. Um, because I think there there is a big thing within the horror community that there's people that like scary films and there's people that like gory films and there's almost like this kind of like divide between the two and for me personally I am scared of everything <laughs> so you know a horror creator I have like a list you know as long as my arm of all the things I'm scared of just last night my husband was going through like um one of the film channels he was like can we watch paranormal activity I was like, no we can't I can't watch that because I will not sleep if we watch that I've seen it once I could never ever watch it again but you know if someone said to me oh do you want to watch like hostel or something like that yes or, or you know give me more torture porn for me is my like cup of tea I love that so the all of the and I think what you you have to when you go into watching terrifier the thing like the reason why damien did those really really violent gags wasn't because he absolutely is a sicko or anything like that and wanted it to be as violent as possible it's because he wanted to showcase his talent within special effects that's what he'd grown up admiring that you know every time you know Tom Savini's got a specific um like blood uh splatter kind of thing um and every time he'd grown up watching the videos of that he wanted to emulate that he wanted to do it that's why and you can't do all of those special effects if it's not a violent film because that's you know doesn't go hand in hand kind of thing so all of the people that say oh terrifying is just gory for gore's sake no it's not it, it there is a story to it you know admittingly terrifying one there isn't much of a story to it and it doesn't need it. it it really doesn't need it it's got enough um 
yeah and basically everything that you see in that film was exactly as it was apparently they would get up off the floor in that warehouse and be like I might need a tetanus shot now I'm not sure what I've just been lying in kind of thing but it's just when you think of uh, you know sort of like what they did with it it's absolutely amazing and there were people that absolutely fell in love with that and there were people that watched that and thought if he can do that, you know, this guy from Staten Island that hasn't been to film school, that hasn't done this, that hasn't done that. He's done this amazing stuff. He's all self-taught. He's raised this money himself. I could go and do that too. I Okay. So hearing all of that gives me so much more context for like my own experience with it. Because I watched Terrifier on my own, went through it. Terrifier 2 came out and uh, came onto Screenbox and I went and told my wife like, okay, we're watching this tonight, but I like, I have to brace you for this thing. Yeah. Like usually we can just throw a horror movie on and she's on board with it. But I was trying to remind her of what happened in Terrifier 1 so that we could watch Terrifier 2 together. And just my mind went completely blank. Like, uh, I know David Howard Thornton does this amazing clown character who is all at once hilarious and completely terrifying yeah <laughs> and i know the kills are gonna be insane mm. and i kind of stopped there like i think that's all you really need to know from the first one and then we hit play on the second one and it that was all we really needed to know so knowing that this is a showcase for damien's talents with special effects also makes a lot of sense on why there is such a hyper focus on the kills and the gore. The one character gets chainsawed in half, but not the way you would expect. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that must have been insane to try to film, one. Two, that must have been insane to try to film on no budget. Like yeah. How you pull that off without millions of dollars of CGI getting thrown into it, mm-hmm. without having 300 different dummy props made. Like That's a testament to his ability and his yes. know-how and like, Having that on camera and like knowing that context for it just makes it even grander, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And also the trust that the actors had in him. So Catherine um, Corcoran, who played uh, Dawn, that I mean, obviously that wasn't really her being sawn in half. Spoiler. <laughs> but, you know, right up until the kind of like the first couple of cuts, that's her up there doing that, you know, and she could, um, yeah, because I've spoken to both Catherine um, and uh, Jenna, who plays Tara, and she really was up there for, they could only do it, it was something like, 90 seconds at a time or something that she could be upside down and at the and then they had to keep spinning her back because the human can only be upside down for so long in that kind of position before you pass out so they had to keep like filming a little bit and then tilting her and then putting her back and then filming a bit more but yeah she did all of that and it, you know and just again that's just having that trust in your director knowing that you are going to be put in that kind of position but you're going to be safe that's a really big thing as well and the fact that you know they they still all regularly do conventions together and whatnot so it's again I harken back to Neil Marshall a little bit but when you um, work on these kind of things, you build like a closeness and a lot of directors will use the same crew and the same cast, go back and work with them time and time again. Like Sean Pertwee and Neil Marshall are almost synonymous. You know, they've worked together so many times and it's because they have such a trust with each other. They know immediately what each other needs kind of things. And, you know, it's 
David Howard Thornton wouldn't be playing up for like about to go into it for the third time if he didn't have total trust and confidence in Damien and vice versa as well. So it's, it's that kind of thing as well. Um, I have been very lucky and I have met Damien and David and I can attest to the fact that they are both, as often happens in horror, lovely, lovely people, really down to earth, you know, the complete opposite of kind of like the character and all that kind of stuff. Really, really nice and massively humbled when they kind of walked into the convention and everyone was like cheering and clapping and whatnot. It was the first time, I'm not sure about David, but it was the first time that Damien had even been to the UK. And they were like, whoa, they love us here too. That's absolutely like gobsmacking. I can't believe it. (laughs) And it was just really nice. So taking this train into Terrifier 2 then, that makes so much sense why there's so much kind of continuity from the first one to the second one. Yes, with the cast, but also just with the tone, with the the sort of approach that they took. Yeah. Um, I know that between Terrifier 1 and Terrifier 2, I think I remember hearing rumors that Damien was being approached by producers that wanted to take Terrifier 2 on themselves. And he kept turning them down because they wouldn't match his vision. Is that right? Or am I off on this? I haven't heard that one. Okay, I might be wrong here. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm a fan. I'm not an expert. <laughs> Maybe, um, but he worked with um, Phil Falcone as the main producer. Uh, Steve Barton came in as a producer as well, um, and he worked with them both for Terrifier and Terrifier Two. Um, I believe there have been studios um, that have broached the subject of coming in for Terrifier 3 and whether they will or not, I don't know. And I think a lot of that, again, will be, um, if that happens, Damien will be saying, okay, but this is what's going to happen kind of thing because he's already got enough of a story mapped out for, I believe, up to Terrifier 4 or he said, um, or it might be Terrifier 3, part 1 and part 2 kind of thing. But he's got, it's, it's a huge arc, which he basically already knew. By the time when he started writing Terrifier, he knew where it was going to end. He knew what these characters' trajectories was going to be. Um, and again, the kills have had to be, they showcase his amazing talent, but also he is kind of like that double-edged sword because once you have a hacksaw scene where somebody gets, you know, bisected, (laughs) you have to keep upping the ante all the time. And then we had the amazing bedroom kill in Terrifier 2. And so, you know, what on earth is he going to do in the next ones? Um, And something that he's quite clear on as well is like a lot of times, if you go down like the route of extreme horror, quite often there's a lot of sexual stuff involved with that as well. You know, if you look at things like a Serbian film and all of that kind of stuff, you go down there like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, so you've got all like the kill scenes, but also there's like sexual assault and all of that kind of stuff, which makes it worse. But he's like very clear that he doesn't want to have anything like that within the films because it doesn't need it and you know a lot of people are grateful for that as well because they don't need to see that that you know that kind of thing happens in real life we don't always want it to be on on camera for us um, so you are left with that kind of like right okay if all of that's off the table and that's good what can he do to a human body that he hasn't already done <laughs> but I think that's exciting you know what is it yeah. gonna be I can't wait and I think that whole angle also feeds into what we were saying to begin with about knowing what his creative um, goal is with this franchise and just 
sticking to it. Like he, he as a creative knows what he wants to accomplish and nobody's shaking him from that. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, the bedroom kill. Uh, so the last episode I did, I brought my sister on because I got lazy. Um, (laughs) but she is a, uh, she is an ER trauma nurse and we talked Ah. about the final destination movies and how ridiculous the kills in there are. And we had the terrifier two bedroom scene as a, uh, as a bonus kill at the end of the episode, just talking through it. Like, okay, when is she dead? Yeah. And we just like the whole scene is just so absurd and great because of it. Yes. Um, I think that was our final takeaway of the last episode was like, things don't have to be realistic to be fun. No, (laughs) Um, not at all. Not at all. Because if you start bringing realism into it, then you've lost it entirely anyway. You know, it's, uh, it, you can't have, you know, any of the Halloween or the Friday the 13th, you know, like Jason and Michael Myers would have been dead the first time that a police officer shot them kind of thing. So, you know, we don't want realism in horror. Realism is for watching the news and all of the horrific stuff that happens in real life. We want horror just to be fun and silly. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no watching the news. No, no. None, of that real, none of the real horrors. Um, okay, so I want to take this kind of an idea and pivot over to the Outwaters. Mm-hmm. Outwaters was, it came out a couple of months ago, uh, made, the, made the rounds in theaters, sold out a couple of weeks, managed to get more weeks in theaters. Uh, again, kind of watching it from the sidelines on Twitter. Like you cheer for the indie horror film making it, and then it uh, it popped up on Screenbox the other day. Screenbox is getting really good at finding the indies and bringing them to, into our homes. But anyhow, it pops up on Screenbox, so I watched through it. Um, it's kind of it, it kind of showed up at the same time as Skinamarink. Mm-hmm. Um, we had two indies make names for themselves at the same time. Focusing on the Outwaters, though, so if. Damien's big creative focus was the kills and showcasing the special effects. Hmm. We've got Outwaters made also on a micro budget with a very different sort of an approach to Mm -hmm. their storytelling and how they were going to carve out a niche for themselves. So um, you have seen the Outwaters, correct? Yes. Yes, I have. All right. Any big thoughts on it from a movie maker's standpoint? I was absolutely buzzing for it um which is kudos for the kind of like um promotion and advertising that they were doing um i also was really um impressed with the people whoever runs the outwaters twitter account um whether that is robbie or whether he's got PR people, whatever, I don't know, but that they, they were very they did a lot of really cool stuff that was obviously promoting. Um they were sending like boxes off to like people from Fangoria and stuff, you know, that were opening them and they had the bloody handprint in, which is always cool. And everyone's always like really jealous when they see those kind of things. It's like, why am I not on that list to get one of those? <laughs> um but also they were constantly there didn't seem to be any competition between them and like the skin and maroon people or anything like that. They appear to be constantly constantly bigging up other you know indie filmmakers and other films that were doing really well and they just seemed to be like a really like nice team of people that had made it um I'm always always super curious when you watch something which is micro budget just to see how it comes off so my two huge thoughts on it was that um I was very very impressed it didn't seem to me like it was a micro budget. It, it seemed that it was, you know, everything that you, 
everything that they had promised with the trailers and and everything that they were talking about, they delivered on. My only gripe with it, and it's very, very personal, is how ambiguous it is. But having read a little bit more about it afterwards, uh, that is the entire purpose. It is supposed to be ambiguous. It is supposed to only give you hints about what is happening. You know, the fact that um, a lot of the time you are watching what's going on just literally with like a pinprick of light kind of thing. So it just gives you a little flash here and a little flash there. And there is a lot of stuff apparently um, messing with time and space and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it is meant to be confusing. Um, And I will definitely want to go back and watch it a second time and kind of think, oh, yeah, basically. And maybe it's one of those films that you need to watch a few times. And that's when like the puzzle pieces start coming together. Or maybe it is completely meant to be a film that if you talk to one person, they say this happened. You talk to another person, they say that happened. And nobody's right or wrong. It's all different interpretations and that kind of thing. For me, I, I find that hugely exciting. I find it very clever because it is getting people talking about it. And especially with independent stuff, word of mouth is more important than anything else. But it was just marginally frustrating because my little brain saying, but I want the answer. <laughs> tell me. Just tell me what the actual ending is. Tell me what happened. <laughs> I Okay, so I'm coming at this from the opposite end of the spectrum that I love kind of those open-ended puzzle horror movies, um, especially when you're dealing with something that's cosmic horror. Um, This idea that we're dealing with something that's like bigger and grander in scope than our human brains could possibly comprehend. And then the movie reflects that too. Like, nah, you wouldn't get it. (laughs) Like you're, you're you're not going to understand the ending of this because like you go insane when you understand the ending of this. Um, but yeah, I was as soon as the credits were rolling, I was on Reddit going through like, okay, what 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 is? And everybody has these totally different theories. Like, yeah. oh, there was a cosmic entity under the under the desert pulling the strings. Oh, it was a time warp thing. Oh, it was a, like, and everybody's just diving into it. And I feel like something I wanted to get into, and the reason I kind of put Outwater on our docket here is because I think it did a really good job of using that as a strength to generate buzz for itself. Yes. Um, It kind of markets itself afterwards when everybody's going on the internet trying to find out what's happening with this thing. And there's 20 different chat rooms popping up at the same time. Like, what just happened? What did we just watch? Yes. And I think it did a good job in the film itself of creating these good, horrific atmospheres I don't think I breathed for the last 30 minutes of the movie. (laughs) Um, Like, even though I couldn't follow the plot line because I wasn't supposed to, Mm -hmm. it still had the desired horror effect on me. Yes. And I think that's crazy. That's like, that's so cool. And it's one of those things that would never get greenlit by a major studio. Oh God, yeah. A movie without an ending. Yes. Or a, a, a movie without an answer. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. You know, there's there's nothing that um, I can't think of anything negative about it, because the only thing that I didn't like so much was the fact that there wasn't the answer. And that's because of that's what I like in my own horror is to have, well, in anything that I watch, I want an answer. But I totally think that the kudos for doing that is amazing. Um, and like you said, it's just 
I don't know whether the guys went into it knowing that, you know, or kind of like planning for that or whether it's just all serendipity that, you know, people are suddenly going like, what the hell happened? But not in a like angry way, like what happened? We'll never know kind of thing. They're like, oh, my God, I've got this theory. I've got that theory. I need to we need to discuss this kind of thing. And that's just brilliant. Anytime that you see that excitement around a film because people want to know what was going on and they've got all these different, oh, oh no, you're crazy. That can't possibly have happened. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and watch it again now to, to try and look out for that kind of thing. That buzz is just, you can't buy that. It is It was completely organic from what I can tell. And that's just amazing. I got the same impression from it that I got from the first season of Lost. Um, when it came out like everybody's on the chat rooms trying to sort out what's happening but unlike with lost where they had no clue what they were doing um this always came across as like the people behind it know what's going on there is a purpose for all the things happening even if we're not privy to it but it, it felt very tight and intentional um okay but We've got the big, the big other pieces uh, out of play and on the board now. We've talked about like building these indie productions and like what everybody's different creative flavor was that they tried to add to it. So let's move into your work. Um, <laughs> this is the part of the interview where I'm going to have to be very careful because I don't know how much you want to reveal about which project yet, but I know you've got two big projects in the pipeline right now. Yes. Um, Her, which is in post-production. Yes, that's right. Yep. And Footsteps, which is in very early pre-production. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. All right. Uh, which one of those would you like to talk about first? Uh, can you could you kind of set the stage for us about what the what the projects are, what the ideas behind them, and what's what's drawn you to these stories? Yeah, of course. Uh, so it makes sense to talk about her first. Um, and basically, in a nutshell, her was for me. Um, when you read stories about um, like well-known directors and filmmakers, so I've just been reading uh, Bruce Campbell's book, um, and he talks about him and Sam Raimi when they were teenagers, running around with like the Super 8 camera and doing bits and pieces. So I didn't do any of that. So what I likened her to, in a way, was my own like work experience me like interning and finding out exactly what it's like to be on a film set exactly what directing means exactly what making a film is so I was very lucky to um connect with Sam Mason Bell on Twitter um and he is part of Trash Arts Films and he 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 does everything he's a director and a producer but most importantly for me he's a cinematographer and he said to me um if you want to make a film, a short film, just so that you know, you know, you keep saying that you want to do this, but really you need to do it kind of thing. So you know what it entails. Have you got something that you can, um, that we can do quickly? And um, being an author, I've got a whole obviously collection of short stories ready to be adapted into a script at any time because I own all the IP. There's no, you know, obviously um, problems with any of that. And the specific reason why I chose her, which is one of uh, the stories in my collection, was because it's a single location story with just two characters with very minimal um, props or effects or anything like that. So it was something that logistically was going to be fairly easy to do. 
because of all of the components um and that was important as well because you know you can you can say, anybody can say i want to be a director i want to be a filmmaker and then they're given a hundred page script and you're like oh shit what am i gonna do with this kind of thing so it made total sense to do something that was just like by the time so when i um converted it into a script it was like seven pages I think um and I already knew the story and I knew the characters and I knew everything because it was my own um but what what I also did with it was treated it as you would do anything else so I I still shot list it I still did storyboards for it we still had a budget and a production you know kind of outline and everything and I still treated it with the respect that it deserved but knowing that it was very, very micro budget and that we could, we shot it in my front room, in my house kind of thing, because that was, again, okay. all we could do, you know, so we didn't have to go location scouting or anything. So we didn't have any money to pay for it necessarily. Um, and the experience was absolutely invaluable. So you see a lot of people go, um, you know, sort of saying whether they're experienced filmmakers or whatnot, they say anybody can make a film these days because we've all got like iPhones and things like that. You can just turn on your camera and just go out and make a film. Well, that's all well and good. But for me, I can barely, you know, take a photo on my iPhone. I'm not very tech savvy whatsoever. So I knew I couldn't do it at quite that level, which is why I got Sam involved, because he brought his proper Blackmagic camera, which is beautiful. But also, ultimately, I do want to make a proper film. So this was my learning experience. And it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it also learned some things um I'm not gonna nothing went wrong we were very lucky with that but there were things that I would definitely do differently when it comes to footsteps as well and that was the entire reason for doing it you know because as I said there's there's nothing is as good as actually being there so you, you can read about being a director you can watch making ofs on you know the extras on dvds you can listen to podcasts you can hear all this kind of stuff which is brilliant but nothing beats the actual experience of being there doing it and throwing yourself in and I was so nervous when everybody kind of like turned up and one of the, this is gonna sound so stupid but one of the big things was um when as the uh, director you shout action and I was like, I don't know if I can do it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound stupid. That's what I kept thinking to myself, you know, which is ridiculous. Having been a police officer and been in like sort of riots and things and arresting people and all that kind of stuff. And I was worried about standing in my lounge with my friends and shouting action. But when it actually came down to it and it was like sound and camera rolling and all that kind of stuff, I was just like, action, like I was Steven Spielberg or something. <laughs> it was amazing. And just the entire experience was brilliant. And now I've seen um, I've seen the raw footage and it just it looks so good as well. And Sam's also editing it. So he's kind of putting some music to it and doing all of the bits. He's graded it and all that kind of stuff. And it looks really good so far. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> nice. What was what was the process like transitioning it from short story to script? Um, because I know uh, when I talked to Brian McCauley about it, um, he ha he wrote the book Curse of the Reaper. He's also worked in film um, as a as a scriptwriter. Wow, my voice as a scriptwriter. Um, teaches scriptwriting, um, and we got into that a little bit with him about just like the difference in the two mediums. But taking your own project that you wrote down in the short story, I, I'm sure you like crafted it mm -hmm. very intentionally with like the descriptions and everything yes. else. 
and then having to mold that into a new form. I don't know. Were, were there any big revelations when you were working through that? I actually found it easy to be able to do. Um, and one big part of that was because uh, something that I splurged on was the uh, final draft software, um, which a lot of screenwriters use. Uh, so it formats it beautifully for you anyway. And you've got all these things that just pop up, you know, like character, dialogue, action, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and because it was only a short story anyway, um, it was quite easy to be able to just basically if you take a story if you take prose and you put it into script all you're doing is taking out the waffly description and kind of just like putting it into dialogue and action instead it must be far more difficult if you've got a really like a novel and you're trying to because you'll probably have to take quite a lot of the you know parts out but for a short story it was quite easy uh, I thought anyway, I know other people really dislike it, which is why quite often you'll have a, a separate um, novelist and screenwriter on films, you know, the, when people obviously take it and do it. But I enjoyed the process. It was quite, and I actually it made me kind of like question things about my prose writing as well, kind of like, did I need that? No, I did that. That that paid. You know, that was just almost like a filler in there. Don't you don't need that in the story, and um, yeah, it was it was a really interesting process, and I actually quite like um script writing because it, it's quite quick as well. It's also, it also flows far quicker because you're you're constantly having to get the action in there, and if you're if I think it's it's different as well because I was writing the script knowing that I was directing it. So as I was writing the script, I was kind of shot listing at the same time thinking, OK, right, the description there, that's brilliant. I know exactly what that is. And I know that I, that's the shot that I want. So it's kind of doing that at the same time, whereas it's probably different if you're writing a script and knowing that someone completely different is going to be directing. Therefore, you probably have to be a little bit more um, clearer, maybe in exactly in like the actions and the and all, like those kind of bits and pieces because somebody else has to interpret it but it, it's quite e it, I, I don't want to say easy that's the wrong word enjoyable anyway as um when you're the writer director because it's um it's almost like doing two jobs at once because thing like as you're writing a bit of dialogue and like it's sort of like a, as like the character enters from a certain way in your mind you can then see oh yeah that's it for the storyboard or for the shot list I'm going to need the camera at a certain angle so that we can get the door to open and those kind of things it's yeah it's cool <laughs> But that's so I'm I'm starting to get into script writing myself, too. And a lot of the books and the advice I've been reading is like, don't include like, don't try to direct through the scripts, like let the leave those things out for the director and like don't don't tell them what the shot needs to look like. But if you're the director, right. too, yeah. you can just yeah. do what you want. That's exactly. Cool. Yeah. And um, I, can, I can see that because a director will have a completely different take on it and every director does something differently. So they're not going to want to be walked through it because they've got their own very specific way. But yeah, if you know that you're the writer and the director, and let's face it, within indie, a lot of us are, um, then yeah, definitely put in as much information as you can, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then so... Then I guess with that in mind, the the part where you do have to completely let go of your own story um, would be when you hire actors to perform the lines and perform the dialogue. 
Was there any hesitation around that for you taking the story that you wrote the novel, then you wrote the script and now, oh no, my baby, the words, they're, they're for you now. I was so lucky because the two actors that we use, uh, Bella Rich and Chris Mills, um, again, I already knew. Um, because they are part of Trash Arts. They're friends with Sam, the cinematographer. So all of these people I already knew um, and I had met and they were as excited about the script as I was kind of like making it. And they were like, whatever you need, you know, we will do this. We want to make this for you. We want to do everything we can. You know, if, if I'm not delivering it right, they were asking me questions all the whole time. And they, because it was very much, neither of them are like jobbing actors kind of thing. They very much do this because they love it and they love the script and they like me and they wanted to make me proud of what they were doing kind of thing, which was just really nice. So no, with her, there was no hesitation whatsoever. Now with Footsteps, the characters in that, again, it's a longer story, um, not massively longer, but it is longer. And I'm very protective of the characters in there. Um, one of the main characters is actually called Felicity and she's named after my daughter. And although the characters have nothing to do with my, it's still a namesake kind of thing. Right. So, uh, yeah. I'm a little bit more of like a mum when it comes to these particular characters, but um, Bella who was in her is playing Felicity. And I know exactly what, that she will be able to, she will make that character come to life. And I trust her. And again, it's that thing, it's that trust. And it has to be that two-way trust. You have to know that your actor is going to, to, to look after your character. But also there has to be that kind of trust that they might do just a little something that you hadn't necessarily expected and it will make it even better because they're bringing it from, obviously it's a very much a 2D character when you're writing them, they're bringing that character to life and you ha kind of need to be able to know that they might just might be a little quirk of theirs that they bring to that character. And you're like, Oh yes, now they're fully formed. Now they're 3D kind of thing. Now that the character has been born and yeah, so I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, so Let's go ahead and move into footsteps then, since we're a we're getting short on time, and b we've kind of like reached the topic now. Um, we are still. I'm dropping this episode in the next week, so the Indiegogo is still going to be fully on a roll. Um, let's let's pitch the hell out of this thing for a little bit here. <laughs> um, what is the premise of footsteps? Why should everybody run out to the Indiegogo and like basically pre-order a copy of it? I, the the whole like rationale of indiegogos and kickstarters like or the verbiage surrounding them are still weird to me i feel like i just pre-ordered a movie um yeah but... that, yeah that, it, that is kind of like you, you are if if you help um a, an indiegogo in any way shape or form you are helping the film come to life basically so and whether that's just donating a couple of dollars or all the way up to one of like the executive producer kind of things uh, it's every single penny helps but and even more than every single penny every single share every single time somebody else gets eyes on it that that's amazing for all of these kind of things so basically footsteps is one of my favorite stories that i've written um and the very basic kind of like crux of it is felicity and becky are two uh university students this is back in the 90s and for felicity's final thesis at uni 
they are looking into um, a spate of it's like local law about people that have gone missing over the last kind of century within this particular forest, which is near to them called Marshall Woods. And um, they decide that they want to go and spend the night in this particular forest. Uh, so it's a little Blair Witchy in some ways, although it's not found footage. Um, and they take like their camera and stuff because they want to try and take some pictures for the thesis kind of thing. And just to get some evidence of either something happening or just being able to build into the atmosphere um, for the for this final report that she wants to do. Um, they're not particularly um, believers in all of that. In fact, Becky um, is more of a sceptic than anything. And very um, early on, they take a photo, just trying to get some sort of like pictures um, to be able to use in the project. And when they look at the picture, there's something blurry behind one of the trees. And the shit hits the fan after that, basically. <laughs> All right. Yep. Um shit hitting fan is always like yes um so if if we're taking that premise for a story uh and kind of building back in something we were talking about earlier in the interview with a bunch of these indies kind of have their their thing right so damien's got his special effects and the outwaters team has maybe their creativity their their marketing or uh, that that's not the right thing to attribute to them the the open-ended storytelling um when we're thinking about her and when we're thinking about footsteps, what do you want your thing to be? When when somebody watches a Janine Pipe production, what do you think or what do you want the first thought in their head to be? Like, oh man, the gore is going to be off the charts or yeah. oh, the narrative is going to be crazy and spiraling. Um, do you have I, a thing yet? Uh, I don't know. Um, I have been told that my thing is that my work tends to be, it's definitely gory, um, but it can be quite funny as well. Um, I, I once got, and the person meant it as a criticism. They were actually being negative towards me, but um, I was told that I write like a teenage boy. Um, and I took that as a compliment. I was like... <laughs> I quite like that you know there's lots of stupid like jokes and things in there what uh, you know because I think that um something which I find really um important in horror is the whole kind of like uh roller coaster thing and if you constantly have that like shock 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 fright 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 you become desensitized to it there is no kind of a it's just like waiting for the next thing whereas if you can have that little bit of levity so with the like the roller coaster going up it's like oh shock oh let's bring it back with a laugh oh and there's another shot and that's what I kind of try to do there's not very much of that in her because the wasn't able to with the short amount of time but a lot of my especially my stories do tend to have a bit of jokey and just kind of um bit of banter Again, it's another reason why I love dog soldiers so much is that there is that banter between the characters and the comedy and, you know, just things like, you know, I, I must have watched it over a hundred times. I've watched it a lot of times before I wrote the book, but obviously I had to rewatch it a lot of times. And there are certain moments within Dog Soldiers where I still will laugh, even though I know exactly what's coming and I've heard it and I've said it so many times, but I will still laugh. So I would love to, you know, for people to think of my work and think of it as definitely gory, but that there's some, you know, that it's fun 
gory fun. That that's what I'd like my thing to be. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> As you were talking about like jokes and fun and stuff like that, it it feels very like Josh Rubin ish, maybe yes. Jordan Peele ish, um, having that sort of an approach. Yeah. So nice. This is usually the part of the interview where I ask the uh, guest if there are any future projects that they want to pitch, but we've kind of already dove into that. Um, So let me go ahead and spin this end question a little bit here. Um, What would be your dream future project? Uh, Assuming her does really well, Footsteps does really well. um, Let's assume just a a blank check from the, the... producer heavens um what what would be the biggest baddest janine pipe project you could you could envision it's really difficult because i've already done the dog soldiers book and i've already worked with neil and that kind of was the dream thing with um dog soldiers being my most favorite film in the world and my kind of like respect for neil um, and we've already um, got the making of the descent is going to be our next project that we work on together. I saw that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, which again is just absolutely amazing because it's just such a fantastic film, but it's also so well loved. You know, people cite it daily, really, if you like look it up kind of thing. And it still comes into people's top 10 most scary films and all of those kind of things. So I suppose if I had an endless budget and I could do anything that I want it would be working on a film with Neil I think would be the real big thing and we get Damien in to do our effects <laughs> okay the 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 power trio <laughs> yeah what could me Neil and Damien come up with that would be batshit crazy for certain <laughs> <laughs> I'm in I love it good answer um Anything else you'd like to say to anybody listening uh, before we wrap this thing up? So the Indiegogo is live. Please go jump on Janine's Twitter page um, and, and find the link to that and support. But otherwise, any any last words? Um, just support indie horror, you know, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean buy the books, buy the film, support the Indiegogos. If you can do that, then we are massively, massively grateful But, you know, times are hard for every single person out there. But what you can do is share things because you never know who you might be. You know, you might retweet something and somebody on your timeline who we've got no interaction with whatsoever sees it and thinks, oh, my God, I could invest in that. Or they might retweet, you know, it might be that whole kind of pyramid thing where it takes several shares or retweets, but somebody's going to see it and be like, that sounds amazing. I'm going to invest in that. And that's, you know, that's so important for those of us that haven't got a huge team behind us to be able to promote stuff and for pay for commercials and advertisements. It's the word of mouth and the power of social media. So my final word would be if you if you like a film, if you like a book, if you like anything like that, then share it because somebody else out there will see it and will be so grateful for it. Nice. <laughs> Good, uplifting, positive message. Yay! I like it. <laughs> well, that just about wraps us up for this episode. Janine, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Um, and listeners, thank you for tuning in. This closes us out for the week. But please, before you go, don't forget to like, subscribe, review, or go do the thing yourself. Be indie uh, on the uh, streaming service of your choice. We'll see you next time. Stay spooky.
coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. 